Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, low pride global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. Online at mypremierortho.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the waiver that was recently granted to the state of Indiana from uh, some of the testing requirements of the No Child Left Behind Act. We're going to find out what that means for school districts in the state. We have three guests with us in the studio. Phil Harris is here. He is the vice chair of the Indiana Coalition for Public Education, Monroe County and South Central Indiana chapter or affiliate. And he's also uh, one of the authors on a book called The Myths of Standardized Tests. Naylon Clark is here. He's the superintendent of schools at South Harrison Community School Corporation. And Dale Chu, the assistant superintendent of innovation and improvement at the Indiana Department of Education. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is where to go on the web to join us for a live chat. So, uh, Mary Catherine, good Hi, to Bob. see you. Hi, Bob. Good to see you. And education is always a great topic here in Bloomington, mm-hmm. so I'm glad to have our three distinguished guests with us today. Um, I wanted to throw out the, the first question. Well, maybe I should uh, go to Dale first to, to uh, sort of set the stage for this, uh, the No Child Left Behind Act. Give us some, sort of some background, some history, and, and what the waiver actually is. Sure, absolutely. So uh, No Child Left Behind uh, is, uh, was the most re- recent reauthorization of uh, what is known as Elementary and Secondary Education Act, or ESEA. Uh, and actually, it was initially uh, authorized, I think it was back in the mid-60s, uh, under President Johnson. And just the, the, the short story is basically to, to, to make sure that when it comes to funding public education, that those students that are often too, too often marginalized in today's society uh, get, you know, get some funding, the funding that they need. Uh, so since No Child Left Behind was passed, uh, and as the timeline has gone on since 2001, uh, one of the original goals was to make sure that all schools in Indiana, as well as across the country, had 100% of their students proficient on the state test by the end of 2014. Uh, as we get closer to that timeline, more and more states are seeing that that particular uh, goal uh, is becoming very difficult to attain. And so you, Indiana was one of 11 states that applied for a waiver. Uh, from some of these provisions of No Child Left Behind. And Indiana, I believe it was last week, uh, is actually was one of the states that, uh, that received it. Okay. So um, I just want to ask this general question. Is this good news for the state? Is it bad news for the state and the schools? Or is it really kind of no news at all? And I, I want to – go ahead. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll start. I, mean, I, think, I, I think it's good news, right? I mean, certainly one of the things we've heard from educators across the state is, you know, that sort of being under the gun for making sure that by 2014 all schools are 100 percent proficient in English language arts and math. Lots of folks are telling us that that particular goal is untenable. Uh, another piece of it was, uh, you know, the way we grade schools. And historically, we've had what's known as a, an AYP or adequate yearly progress cap. And so the, what the effect of that is, is we have a number of schools across the state that actually should be A schools or B schools for that matter, but couldn't score higher than a C because of this cap. Uh, and now as a result of this waiver, that cap no longer exists. You're going to see a bunch of schools that have been sort of, you know, quote unquote, held back for a number of years and now are actually going to be able to show their true colors. What does that mean? I don't understand. And why would there be a cap on progress? <clears throat> Great question. So this kind of is a, a little bit more into the details of No Child Left Behind. But one of the provisions of that particular law was making sure that all states were focusing on particular subgroups of students. So, for instance, African-Americans is a subgroup, Hispanic, special ed, and so forth. And you actually have over 30 different subgroups. So I could be a school, for instance that is making progress, uh, and I could be making sure that all my African-American students are doing it, all my Hispanic students are doing it, and so forth. But if I miss in just one subgroup, let's say I miss in uh, special ed, for instance, it could be in any of them, then if I do that for, I believe, two years, two consecutive years, then I start getting capped. 
And so no matter how much the performance of all the students of my, in my school do, if it's just one subgroup isn't making the federal criteria, I couldn't earn more than a C. And this is something so it's just that, your rating that's capped. Mm-hmm, that's right. Okay. Which, which, which was something that we definitely were heard from a lot of educators. They were actually sure. really excited to be able to get out from under that. Mm-hmm. Right. Nailing right. Clark. Do you uh, think this is good news? Well, I think it's pretty much more the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you talk to the critics of, of the move from No Child Left Behind and AYP, Adequately Yearly Progress, to the new state formula um, of the grading of schools, uh, you'll hear other critics say that there is a fear or a threat that we're going to begin to ignore those subgroups that were referenced by uh, Dale. But... Uh, I don't think that's necessarily uh, the case. Um, I think the premise behind No Child Left Behind we all agreed with, and that is that we want every child to be successful. We want every child to develop and grow in a very positive, productive way. I think the new law, uh, the new waiver provides the same thing. Where it really got bogged down um, is in the detail. And I'm a little bit concerned on the waiver because people will say, the critics will also say that the waiver uh, kind of waters down the standards. Uh, and I would agree with Dr. Bennett and folks at DOE that that's totally the opposite. The, the, the standards as we know them, the, uh, uh, the new standards being imposed on local public schools are probably more uh, stringent and more demanding than under No Child Left Behind. The proof in the pudding will be the measures that DOE comes at local public community schools uh, with technical assistance to assist those schools in making uh, that that benchmark. And, uh, you know, what I say to parents and what I've said to uh, policy leaders in the state and my representatives is if you have an A school, and I happen to have two high schools that were capped uh, by um, by the AYP mentality, but if you have an A school and you have a, a parent and a child in your A school that's not being successful, that parent really doesn't care what grades on the front door. Mm-hmm. They want their child to be successful. Um, ca- counter that a little bit. If you now have a child in a school that is deemed to be a low-performing or failure school, um, but the child is experiencing success in the low-performing school, that sends a lot of mixed messages and a lot of confusion to parents and and what and how to do. I find it a little ironic that the state has adopted a grading system that most schools across the country are kind of moving away from. And let me explain that just a bit. Schools across Indiana and across the country are now beginning to look at standard-based, proficiency-based assessment. What that really means is we're getting away from the letter grades to the point, and we're actually being very specific about the skills that children have. And so a letter grade is just an indicator. It's kind of like me jumping on the scale and saying, okay, I'm 20 pounds overweight. It doesn't tell me about my diet, my exercise, all my life patterns that I need to change in the good things you're doing as well as the bad things to do that Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. what I see happening under the new waiver requirement is yeah we're getting indicators but the real proof in this whole uh, experiment so to speak um, is yet to be seen by how we approach it in terms of implementation in the state programs all right Phil well, I'm going to probably be uh, more aligned with Nyland in my criticism of not only No Child Left Behind, but of the state's uh, own uh, assessment plan itself. I think it's more misguided assumption that you can find the quality of an education by number, whether it's how well a student is learning, how well a teacher is teaching, or how well a school district is doing what it's supposed to be doing. The major emphasis in the new uh, assessment for the state of Indiana in the new guidelines that it's really a trade-off rather than a waiver. The state really wasn't given an option of not to have a strong evaluation process in place. In my opinion, they confused accountability with evaluation, and they talk about this as the state's accountability system when it's, in fact, the state's evaluation mm-hmm. system. 
that should have been cleared up, and it didn't get any clarity in the waiver. How, how would you distinguish between the two? The accountability is saying what it is we're doing. We're, here's what we are doing with the money that you're providing. Mary Catherine, you want to know, can I do it better? Now we started evaluation. Mm-hmm. So the minute I stop explaining what it is that we are doing with the money, whether I'm an individual classroom teacher, a building principal, a superintendent, then I'm explaining to you, here's how I'm being accountable for what you've asked me to do. I've provided this educational experience. The minute you ask me if I could do it better, then I've jumped over into the evaluation. And most of what we're dealing with here is evaluation and not accountability. Mm-hmm. And so the assumptions that seems to enable the st- that are behind this waiver, it seems to me, is that it's designed to enable the state to step in sooner and take over low-performing schools. And those low-performing schools are judged by ISTEP, which is a flawed measuring device in the first place. So the state system, I think, is more punitive than uh, No Child Left Behind, actually. Mm -hmm. And I think it's intended to justify the state takeover of the larger number of low-performing schools. All right. Uh, let me give our phone numbers, and then I'm going to give Dale an opportunity to react to some of those comments. Uh, phone numbers, again, are 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington calling area. That's a toll-free line. And WFIU.org slash Noon Edition if you want to go online and uh, join the conversation about uh, the waiver from the No Child Left Behind Act. Dale? Sure. You, you want to react to some of the things? Yeah. Do, is it a goal of the state to uh, take over low-performing schools? We have actually seen kind of a, a creep of the state getting or at least attempting to get more and more involved in education on the local level. I know that there's been a big um, discussion this year about uh, the state being involved in setting the start and stop dates for the school year that's been met with, I think, at best mixed reviews. Um, so is, is that where we're headed? Is that a goal of the, the administration? Great, great questions and a lot of stuff to unpack. Yeah. And I also don't want to I don't forget all of these great questions <laughs> and points for, for, for we'll uh, folks for, folks are brought back. So if I miss anything, please please uh, please remind me. I'd like to go back to that. I think both uh, Phil and Nalen touched upon in terms of the A through F letter grades and, and you know the, the idea that they don't show you know everything that goes into a school. And I, I couldn't you know ag- agree more. I mean, certainly there is never one measure you can use to show all the great things that are going on, you know, in a school. And, and, and our hope at the department uh, is that when it comes to these letter grades, um, that whether your school is an A school or an F school or anywhere in between, that it, it's a conversation starter rather than everything just ends w- with with that. Uh, in terms of the question about the matter, Catherine, you, you asked me about, about the, uh, the start date, end date. That, that particular piece has been something, you know, Dr. Bennett really believes that when we're looking at time uh, in school, really we should be looking – the conversation should be more about let's, how do we lengthen the school year, how do we lengthen the school day, rather than uh, focusing per se on exactly when the you know, when school starts and once, when school ends. Though certainly there has been a lot of vigorous discussion about that in the General Assembly. Um, let's see. Uh, in terms of the, you know, some of the pieces that you – know, the, the criticisms around the waiver and that you know, th- this might reflect a step, behind, step back uh, for the state – you know, I, I mean, I think certainly you know, I'm going I'm to respectfully disagree uh, on that piece. But I think also a lot, a lot of the things that are wrapped into this is that when No Child Left Behind was authorized back in 2001, you know, bipartisan coalition with, you know, at the time the late Senator Kennedy and uh, President George W. Bush, uh, they did the best, what they thought was the best that they, you know, they could do given the, uh, for lack of a better term, the assessment technology that existed back then. That, you know, let's look at the kids – how many kids pass the test, how many kids don't pass the test. And previous to No Child Left Behind, states in general, it was a really mixed bag in terms of really, whether they were really, really focusing on the kids that uh, more often than not fall through the cracks. And so this is really the first, that, back in 2001, it was the first step to attempt at, you know, let's, let's try to move the ball in terms of making sure the needs of all kids are addressed. With this waiver now in 2012, I mean, I would argue that it's the next step uh, forward. Uh, but this is this is going to be a process. This is definitely not you know if we had a magic wand, it would be great. 
Uh, but I think given sort of everything that's transpired since back in 2001, this waiver uh, shows a lot of promise in terms of the, the federal government's confidence in what we're doing as a state and, and in turn the, the great work of the educators across the state are doing as well. I have to respectfully disagree with your assumption that you said uh, we're both, and, and correct me if I misunderstood, but that both a longer school day and a longer school year are desirable. I'm not, I'm not sure I actually agree with, with that premise. But going back, I want to know, um, do you see it as a goal of this administration to um, have more control, if you will, and more input on local school districts? I would actually, Mary Catherine, I would actually say it, it's the opposite. I mean, one of the things that Dr. Ben always talks about is that we really need to respect local control and really look at schools as centers of innovation, right? Um, I mean, we at the state in Indianapolis, I mean, we are not going to know all of the specific needs of the students in a particular community, you know, the parents, all the dynamics at the staff, as well as the folks that actually live there. So I think from the state's perspective, um, you know, we set some guardrails. But then we want to make sure that we're not stifling the good work that folks are doing. So, mm-hmm. all right. I want to ask uh, Nalen from you know you're in the trenches. I mean, do you feel like you have as much control or as much autonomy? Um, you know, you've been at this you know a while. Uh, do you feel like you that you have ha- you do have as much autonomy as you once did? Uh, no, we don't. Yeah. And uh, and part of that has to do with just general society in in, in general, but. Um, as I listen to my colleagues, I I find points that I agree with both of them. I guess I'm more strongly affiliated with Phil, uh, but it's easy to jump on the bandwagon as a local school leader and kind of bash the DOE a little bit. But um, <laughs> but let me go back. I want to clarify something for uh, in defense of classroom teachers and principals in the, in the who are really truly in the trenches. Uh, we talk about this uh, uh, No Child Left Behind uh, assessment standard back in 01, and there is some belief that, you know, the 2014 deadline that schools were not going to be able to reach that that pinnacle point of being able to have the majority of your kids proficient at that point in time. You have to also keep in mind that from 2001 to present date, how many times our assessment instruments have changed? I can't even begin to count the number of times that we've changed. Having so you're get, saying it's a moving target? Oh, absolutely. It's Every a year. totally, totally moving target. And the other part of the issue is, and not that that's all bad, but I don't want anyone to be misled that our teachers haven't done a stellar job. Schools today, public schools today, are performing better than they've ever performed before. The question becomes, is that still good enough? And, you know, that's an unanswered question. Mm -hmm. I think the other aspect of it is, it goes back to Dr. Harris, and that is that these tests that we're utilizing for accountability or some judgment based on the performance of a school were never, ever truly designed for that purpose. They're really designed for the next teaching step. It's designed to give teachers and professional educators knowledge and a database by which they can move to the next step to help students grow and develop. They're not designed by their very philosophical foundation, designed to judge school to school, class to class, so forth and so on. Um, If you read Dr. Gusky, who's one of the gurus across the country regarding curriculum and assessment, uh, he will tell you, or he would tell you in his writings, that there is more inequity from classroom to classroom within a school than there is from school to school and school system to school system. So the, the problem with this is... It's such um, complexity of forces working within the school. Uh, Indiana has been known as a local control school estate. So um, part of this smacks at a challenging and threatening perhaps local boards and local superintendents. Um, I will tell you, just use the example of teacher evaluation, which is one of the components of the new new uh, program under the waiver and school districts are clamoring all over the state to make sure they adopt the model as required by state statute Um, we adopted a model 12 13 years ago that was really designed to create a dialogue between 
edu- educational leaders that did the evaluation and the classroom teacher to have that dialogue so that we would improve instruction in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Now, with the new model coming with RISE or with an, uh, some variation of that, that model, it, in, and I'm going to speak for South Harrison, there, because there will be so many evaluations occurring on behalf of the principal, there's a question, can they do them all? And can they do them adequately? And will that threaten a meaningful dialogue between the school principal or a school leader or the evaluator and the person being evaluated in, in regard to implementing real re- research-based practices that would improve instruction for children? And those are all questions that are out there unanswered. Is this – are you talking about like the, the, the principal well, – the teachers teaching to the test, or the principal having to rise to—I'm not saying this probably right—but um, you know, everybody looking toward the guidelines and focusing on that as opposed to what's actually happening and being able to respond appropriately to to well, that. If you talk to local school leaders, they will tell you they're not teaching to the test, but they almost have to. I mean, we can't—we cannot live in the environment that we live in and be judged by what we judge. And not be sensitive right. to the issue that there are a number of benchmarks out there that we have to meet. And so, to a certain extent, we are. But could, could, I, the, could, I, could I add to that? I think that the, the part of I think uh, Nalen's point is right on in terms of a lot of folks are saying they're not teaching the test, but made them feel like they have to. And again, this goes back to the waiver conversation back in 2001 when you know, they passed No Child Left Behind, that the tests that existed were just about how many kids pass the test, mm-hmm. jump over the bar, and each year try to get more and more kids over the bar. And so what that was creating, not only in Indiana, but in many states across the country, is that when, when you got closer to test time, um, you know, two weeks left, one week left before the test, not, not in all schools, but in many schools, we've heard this anecdotally from teachers, principals, educators all across the state, is that this phenomenon developed, which is known as teaching to the bubble kids. So essentially you do this triage and you mm-hmm. say, okay, well, which kids are closest to the bar? And we're just going to spend the last week, two weeks, three weeks just focusing on those kids. And for me as a, as a former teacher, I always struggled with that when I was in the classroom. I'm like, wait, wait, my principal told me to do what? Now I got 25 kids in the class and he's telling me just look at these four I mean, I think it's one of, the, one of the challenges that people always wrestled with, particularly mm-hmm. with No Child Left Behind. Yeah. I think with this waiver now in 2012, Indiana is one of only just a couple handful of states that now has adopted what's known as the Indiana growth model. So for the first time in layman's term, you can actually look at how much a kid grows regardless of where they are in, in relation to that pass bar. So for instance, mm-hmm. you could be a teacher, you could have a kid who's three, four, five, six years beyond, behind grade level doesn't even really have a shot to be able to quote-unquote pass. Right. Yet now we can measure for the first time, you know what, maybe that kid still can make two, three years worth of growth. It's not enough to hit the pass bar. But shouldn't the teacher, shouldn't the school be able to be recognized for that? And I think the waiver, going back to the original question, is this a good thing for the state? Mm-hmm. I would say this is another element that, again, advances the ball forward. Okay, Phil has been wanting to get in on this conversation. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah there's several things that uh, I'll try to do this. Uh, give give me a, one or two things, a, well, then we're going to take a break yeah, and we'll second come back half, to you. Yeah. Way. The state's emphasis on ISTEP really is uh, at the heart of what Nyland is talking about and I think is disingenuous on the part of the state, saying that they really are interested in improving learning. They're only improving test scores. That's at the heart of the uh, race to the top. That's at the heart of the no child left behind. And to to suggest that teachers don't have to attend to it, all they have to do is to see that a major portion of the state's assessment of teachers includes I-STEP. Mm-hmm. And so why is it that only in teaching do we not recognize that only attendance is compulsory? Learning is optional. And why we want to hold teachers accountable for their students' learning has never been explained. And we've never had a, an adequate explanation from the state. What is an effective teacher? How would we recognize an effective teacher? And now it's defined by default that an effective teacher is defined by number on a test. How do we define an effective school? The same number. And so the, the fact that ISTEP wasn't intended to be used this way is being overlooked. And the decision makers that are enforcing this are forcing this misplaced tool to be used in this way have got to have a second agenda, 
which is really the privatization of the educational system in the state of Indiana. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We are talking about uh, the waiver that the state has received from the No Child Left Behind Act and some of the ways of evaluating schools, students, teachers, and we're, we're going pretty far afield from all that. We're getting into a lot of educational We're issues. mixing it up. That's right. We are mixing it up. If you're listening to Noon Edition, we'll be right back. <laughs> This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. You know it's a good show and Bob Salzberg has to shut you up <laughs> to start the show again. I know. It's like, Mary Catherine, we are going back on the air and we are here. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with uh, Mary Catherine Carmichael, who's very excited about this show. That's right. And our three guests, who are also very excited, Phil Harris, who's here. He's the vice chairman of the Indiana Coalition for Public Education, the Monroe County and South Central Indiana chapter. He's also one of the authors of the book, The Myths of Standardized Tests. Nalen Clark is here. He's superintendent of schools at South Harrison Community School Corporation in Corridon. And Dale Chu, the assistant superintendent of innovation and improvement at the Indiana Department of Education. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348. And WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is the web address if you want to go join us for a live chat. That's right. Um, I have a few things I want to follow up on, and uh, I'll give Phil uh, time to get through the rest of his points as well. But uh, Dr. Clark, I want to go back to, to you and Mary Catherine's question, which I think was um, – I think you might have misunderstood a little bit. It was more about the evaluation process between the, the, uh, the principals and the teachers and whether – Perhaps the you know the teachers were having to the principals were having to evaluate teachers on things that they wouldn't normally evaluate them on instead of having that robust conversation. Right, about, it changes the conversation. I think. Right. So I, I guess I want to ask you to kind of walk us through what how's this going to work? If let's say I'm a teacher in your corporation and you're a principal, how many times are we going to sit down and what? How's this evaluation? Well, go? First of all, it's required that we do one a year for every teacher in our in our schools. I think we also have to keep in mind that just three years ago, it was unlawful for principals to use uh, test data as part of the evaluation process, uh, and that and today it's required that fifty one percent of that evaluation part of that be contingent upon that data. So that's changed the dialogue a little a little bit, if not significantly. However, having said that, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that looking at trend analysis data of classroom instruction is not a good thing. It is a good thing. If we have, if we have a three- to five-year trend that we, we show that's not a positive thing going on within mm-hmm. that particular classroom, that needs to raise some red flags and some, some real uh, close scrutiny behind uh, our our uh, our review. Okay, let's can we just be real literal here so sure. I'm sure I sure. understand what you're saying. So let's say that in uh, Mrs. Brown's 3rd grade class her children's test scores don't reflect any particular improvement in their math scores during the course of of the year for 5 years. Is that what we're talking about? Exactly, but okay. the, but there are so many variables that go so far beyond that. And the fear that we have is that it has been traditionally known in our profession that school boards and school leaders, such as superintendents and principals, um, 
are responsible for the assignment of kids within their program and studies. Now we have a situation where teachers are going to be evaluated based on the performance of students that have perf- that have variables outside the control of the classroom teacher. So if I said to you, Mary-Kate, here, I want you to take this, this student, and you happen to know some background and you happen to know some variables out there that you're not comfortable with, you would probably come back and say, you know, I'm not comfortable taking that kid because I don't think I can move them at that growth, that I'm going to be ultimately judged and accounted mm-hmm. for and may uh, number one, impact my compensation. It may also mm-hmm. in, uh, impact uh, my livelihood within mm-hmm. the profession. And, and those are pretty serious issues in regard to people that have spent years preparing to be classroom teachers. So then, just as you discussed, um, you end up with, you mentioned the, that group of four that you needed to teach to or that, that you were instructed to, to really mm-hmm. teach to. Don't you then kind of create this class of, I don't know a good word for it, but untouchables of, uh, you know, or, or, you know, human hot potatoes that no teacher really wants in their classroom because... As you say, it's going to have a direct impact uh, on on them as a as a professional. These are all untested waters that we're in, but yes, exactly. <clears throat> I, but beyond that, we've got to get inside the classroom. We've got to get inside uh, the workings of the instructional pedagogical methodologies within the school, within the classroom, to see what's causing the non-growth or or whatever. The other thing of it is, you may find teachers and principals being very strategic in how they do that because if I'm a teacher, I may want to pull certain kids in my class that you would think would be the brightest kids in the school, but they may not be because it's harder to move a kid from a 99.2 percentile to a 99.7 percentile than it is to take a student who is at, let's say, 63 percentile, move them to a 73 percentile. So you get into those types of situations. All right. We're going to go to a phone call, but then keep your thought, though, Dale. You, I know you want to respond, but let's go to uh, Kent on the phone. Kent? Hello. Hi, Kent. Yes, I have a question for your folks that you have there, although I have not been able to listen to all of the program. But in dealing with evaluations, how in the world do any of you ever expect to evaluate properly people that are in the arts, such as band directors, choir directors, orchestra directors, or even people teaching art. In the 33 years before I retired, I never had one superintendent or principal that I ever considered competent to evaluate any of these people. All right. We've got some uh, answers here, I think. Sure, if I could. Yeah. If I could chime, I think it's a great question. I think the, the, the short answer is that um, what I would add to that, it's a great question. How do you evaluate art teachers and music teachers? And I would argue that maybe evaluating art teacher and music teacher, let's say, in Bloomington might look a little different than evaluating art teacher and music teacher in Angola versus down in Floyd's Knobs. And so this goes back again full circle to the, the local control piece. And also, if I could piggyback off trying to bring in what Nalan had shared earlier, you know, I think one of the things that's got lost a little bit in this conversation is the amount of input. Um, that the department has really tried to solicit both in terms of the educator evaluation piece and the waiver piece. Uh, so there was a time where early on the department actually said we want 51% of the evaluation to be based on some sort of student testing. That would include art music teachers, right, way back early on. And when we went around and talked with uh, some of Nayland's superintendent colleagues across the state, but as principals and teachers as well, they said, well, how can the state say that every teacher has to have 51% of their evaluation based off of a test score because I'm an art teacher, I might not have a test. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I could be team teaching with another teacher. I mean, there's all these various elements. And what we came to recognize from hearing that feedback from educators across the state is that it's not the state's role to be that prescriptive in terms of sending it from the top. So, again, going back to the caller's question, which is a great one, I mean, I, I I mean, we heard, like, I take his point very well. You know, he's been teaching for 30-plus years. He's never met a superintendent or anyone who actually knows how to do this. But I guess I, what I would argue is, well, then... Should we just continue another 30 years and have superintendents not know how to evaluate art music teachers? Or should we at least start having the conversation, sharing best practices? You know, how would we? What would be the best way to evaluate art teachers? What are some of the measures that would go into that? So I think that's, that's part of this. Well, I, I think, again, a, a very short answer is the reason all the other teachers besides the math and reading that is 
evaluated is no one's figured out any kind of objective, and I put that in big quotes, process to try to evaluate outside of reading and math. Now, that doesn't mean that the reading and math assessment is any less uh, subjective, Mm -hmm. and that's a part of the mythology is that this evaluation process has some objectivity to it. And so the fact that we can evaluate art teachers and music teachers and gym teachers along in the same way simply points out the the error in trying to evaluate the ones we are doing with a flawed instrument. Okay. We're going to yeah. have to thank Kent and move on to our next question. Thank you for that question. It was a great one. It is uh, a great question. Dave from Bloomington is on the line. Dave? Yes, Hi. Um, I keep hearing, in case if a school doesn't perform well, it would be taken over by the state. What I was curious about is when a school is taken over by the state um, for low performance, what's the timeline to return the school to the local control under a successful program, but more importantly, under a lack of improvement by state control? Okay, we're going to go to Dale Chu. Dale, uh, uh, let me remind you, as the Assistant Superintendent of Innovation and Improvement at the Indiana Department of Education. That's a great question. And actually, it's something uh, you might not like this answer, but or the caller might not like this answer, but it's actually currently being wrestled with by the General Assembly. Uh, there actually was a bill last session that actually spelled out, you know, if a school was to be taken over, you know, how long would it remain under takeover and so forth. But that, you know... Yes, as the legislature usually works. <laughs> they have to it's define a, what this means because right now I'm, you know, I'm picturing guys in suits and, oh, I, you know, storming the castle. Maybe I should say, you know, that's definitely not the right image, Mary Catherine. <laughs> I think, and I think also earlier going back, you know, uh, if I could just bring in sort of what Phil was saying about, you know, a lot of this kind of feels punitive. I think when it comes to this whole quote unquote takeover piece, there's been a lot of this is really, really feels punitive. And I think what's been lost in the message is this whole effort. Uh, takeover is just one small piece of it. I mean, really, in terms of the way the statute is spelled out, there are multiple options that are available. And actually, the the takeover piece, I would argue, is the most severe of the choices. And really, there's a whole host of other options. I mean, we should be really looking at how do we support schools so they don't even get to the situation where they're even facing the possibility. But Dale, uh, really, what does that mean? Does that mean you send somebody who is an employee of the Department of Education in to be the principal and replace those teachers with employees from the Department of Education? What does that mean? It's a great question. Well, first of all, obviously, I just say, again, it's definitely not stormtroopers. (laughs) (laughs) So actually what happened most recently, so the way there's a state law uh, called Public Law 221, uh, passed back in 1999 uh, by the General Assembly. Uh, and the way that law is laid out, just a short version, is that if a school is in the what's cl- called the lowest category, or what is now an F school, for six consecutive years, um, then they face the possibility of state intervention. Uh, there's a menu of options, one of those possibly to be take takeover. This uh, past year, uh, we actually had um, five schools across the state, four in Indianapolis, one in Gary, um, that actually came into the situation where the state board actually recommended um, for uh, a turnaround school operator to be assigned uh, to those schools. So right now, as we speak, um, in, uh, there are three discrete operators that are right now laying the groundwork uh, in terms of getting ready to take operation of the school uh, this coming fall. Hmm. And are those, those are for private or private for-profit. It's a great yeah. question. It's, it's, it's a mix. So some of them are for-profit. Some of them are not for-profit. <clears throat> okay. All right. So so the people their, doing oh, that. Okay. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah okay. Dave's so still on there. Go ahead. Frame, what's their time frame to turn it around to show success? <clears throat> yeah. What's the time frame to turn it around? Is that what they're still wrestling with? That's, that's part of it also. I mean, we talk, when you're talking about an exit strategy for how many years a school should be in this situation, part and parcel of that is going to be, well, then what metrics, what bar are you going to look at so that the school would no longer be in that status? Hmm. All right. Thanks, Dave. You're welcome. All right. 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348, outside the local calling area, and wfiu.org slash noon edition to join a live chat. Um, I've been sitting here listening to our conversation. Dale represents the Department of Education, and you have lots of plans in place to try to improve school corporation performance in the state of Indiana. We have Naylan Clark, a superintendent. We have Phil Harris, who is uh, now on a new in a new organization, the Indiana Coalition for Public Education, which is really trying to support public education and say, hey, things aren't as bad as people are saying. So 
I guess I, I, we know uh, to a degree what Dale's plan is, what the department's plan is. Nalen, seems, if I'm mischaracterizing this, let me know. But I think you disagree with some of what the state is doing. I think Phil disagrees with a great deal of what the state is doing. So I guess, you know, in, in terms of trying to hold schools accountable, trying to improve education, what are one or two pieces that each of you would want to put in place instead of what the state is recommending? Phil, we'll start the, the first thing I would ask that the state do is to engage in a statewide conversation as to what is it that we want to establish as a purpose of public education in the state of Indiana. We haven't had this conversation in our state probably in over 100 years. And in any evaluation activity, you have to evaluate in the context of the purpose. And we could create a much different evaluation process for our students, for our teachers, and for our schools if we had a generally agreed-upon shared intention for the purpose of our public education. So that's a long-term strategy. And the second thing is to recognize how seriously flawed our current system is and the judgments that are being made about our students that are staying with them for the rest of their lives and how it's really misguiding a lot of students in terms of career choices. Give me an example of what you're talking about there, just so I, again, I, I if like If you fail I-STEP, if right. you do, no, let me put it this way, nobody fails I-STEP. You don't reach the standard, and no one wants to talk about, well, who's, who drew the line? Where, who decided where the line in the sand really was? And, and that's still somewhat of a mystery. It didn't used to be, but it is right now. But if you don't meet the standard on I-STEP, then that really follows you throughout your school career. And the likelihood of being retained is in grade is increased. And we know from good sound research that a student who's retained has got about a 60% chance of dropping out of school. If they're retained twice, it's 100%. So the likelihood of not, the, the downside of not meeting the standard increases the risk of that student dropping out of school. And they certainly won't think of themselves as a learner that's really looking beyond high school as some kind of post-secondary experience. Well, to kind of piggyback off what Bill said, and I don't think there's any uh, superintendent or classroom teacher or principal out there that just wants to be anti to be anti. But I do think as uh, we've moved pretty rapidly and uh, there are lots of questions. And perhaps if we had the dialogue that uh, Phil talked about, we could perhaps answer some of these questions. Uh, A couple things that I would uh, uh, present as uh, some concerns, and that is um, no one one negating the fact that we need to, in our local schools, in our local school systems, in our communities, we need to have a very serious uh, examination of of the data. Uh, And I don't mean that on a school-by-school basis. I mean, we need to get it down to the point that we know where a child is, and we need to know what the, the child needs and how we adapt that instruction so we can help that child develop and be successful in our schools. My concern around the state and federal guidelines is w- when we begin those dialogues, we almost immediately go to the minimum compliance model. And, you know, it's almost, uh, I, I saw a, a comedy routine where the school district was known as the uh, compliant school community. Uh, You want to go so far beyond the minimum benchmark because we talked about this at the very beginning is that if you're not careful, the minimums become the maximums, and you want to move that so far uh, uh, beyond that. I think the other thing is that there are school systems throughout the world that we have begun to be be compared to that provide us elements of really sound educational practices that we really haven't taken time uh, due to our national uh, arrogance or whatever. But there are school systems across the world that are really doing really good stuff. I don't know that you can just copy that because part of it is in the process of the development is as important as the end product sometimes. But I do think it provides a lot of elements in terms of what competitive 
academic skills will need to be in the 21st century internationally. You know, it used to be that kids from Cordon Central High School, for example, come to IU and their competitive partner sitting in uh, uh, the uh, introduction to in economics, their, their competitions with a kid from North or from South. They're not anymore. They're from South Korea. They're from Singapore. They're from, you know, Australia and Canada. So we really need to be able to look at those kinds of programs and developing systems. The other issue that I am extremely concerned about, and I know Dr. Bennett is as well, and and I know Dr. Duncan is as well, is that there is a real link between a deficiency of, of, of educational performance and poverty. Hmm. And yet some, no one really wants to talk about the poverty issue. And I'll give you a, a, a real case example. Um, two weeks ago in one of my buildings, I talked to a principal, and we had a first grader that entered school this year, first grader, could not read. And we benchmark in our in our schools. We try to know where we're going to have that child by fall break, which is the end of October, where we'll be by semester break, which is Christmas, where we'll be by spring break. Well, when we had we had the meeting the other day, we're just coming back into our first uh, part of the second semester. Our classroom teacher has that child reading at third grade level. When we had the conference with mom. Mom is a non-reader. If she were in our school, she would be a special needs. And she cried because now she has a little kid who's a first grader who's reading at third grade level. She cannot read to that child. She cannot share in that enjoyment, which brings up the issue of adult literacy. So my, my issue, when Phil talks about my school community versus a Bloomington community, I don't have the college Professors, I don't have the PhDs in, the, in my community that Bloomington has. And so my challenge for my school and for my schools are so much different, and they have to be adapted to the local community. But it is a, a real travesty in our nation that we have kids that go hungry, that we have kids that are in poverty, and it's growing by the day. Mm-hmm. And, and there is a direct link that's one of the key variables in this whole deal. And yet the waiver, the waiver mentality of the state and the federal government doesn't want to talk about that. All right. We only have about five minutes to go. We can still slide in a last question or two if you want to call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or if you want to uh, go on the website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. So we'll, uh, we'll wait and see if anybody wants to give us a call. Uh, I think one of the things that, that Dr. Clark just said is uh, struck me when I heard Judy DeMuth, the local super superintendent speak earlier this year. I mean, they, we sp- spend a lot of time on testing and the academic part, but the school corporation is a big business. I mean, you, you're feeding thousands of kids or thousands of meals every day. You've got bus systems that you're you're transporting kids all around. You've got to take – you have different kids that are coming from different places, and it's uh, – I just wanted to reiterate that. Well, I waited for Bob to get on the line. So, Bob, Bob we have a phone call. Go right ahead, Bob. Yeah, go yes, ahead. I'm glad the issue of poverty was brought up. Um, I work in the field of comparative education. So when you compare test scores on these international assessments of educational achievement, and uh, you find out that the United States doesn't score as well as other countries, it's also true that the poverty rate, the childhood poverty rate in the United States is higher than in those countries. Mm-hmm. And when you begin to look at some uh, examples of successful school systems based on equitable results, as well as achievement tests, you find that the Finnish country generally comes out highest on both measures. And what characterizes the Finnish model is exactly the opposite of what has happened in the United States. They have fewer hours of schooling, fewer days of schooling, and essentially they've eliminated testing, high-stakes testing. And yet they have these wonderful results. The context of the country, of course, it's small, it's a more... Uh, social democratic country, but their policies always weren't this way. They had a national dialogue in which it was big input from the teachers, and they began to move toward this more humanistic model with the notion that from day one, every child is capable of learning. The school system has to find out how to reach that child. 
All right, Bob. Phil? Well, the, the caller's com- question, his comment doesn't really have a question in it, but he's very correct in that the Finland policy is, is very much based on what once was in this country in our use of tests. And if you take the poverty level out of the, NA- the NAEP assessment, the United States is at the top if you adjust for level of poverty. Mm-hmm. NAEP? What's that stand NAEP, for? The National Assessment of Educational Progress. Okay. Uh, I wanted to bring up very quickly, we only have about a minute and a half to go, this idea of, uh, you know, I, I have to say I've been an advocate of a longer school day. I've written many editorials about it. Um, we've talked about the longer school year. You mentioned, um, Dale, that, that uh, Dr. Bennett is looking for a longer school day and a longer school year. Thoughts from all three of you, and we only have about a minute to go, so quickly. I think one of the things that came up you know, was you know, the, the context, and I think that point is very, very important. I think in terms of a longer school day, longer school year, I mean, it's this idea, again, you know, are we really making sure that when our kids graduate from our K-12 system that they really are ready to compete mm-hmm. uh, in this global market? And I think that really cuts to the crux of sort yeah. of this, 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 this conversation we're having right now today. Mm-hmm. 30 yeah. seconds. I think the competition is the wrong goal. And that if we, we need a longer school year, but not to be better competitors in a global economy. Okay. Nalen? I'm seconds? more concerned with the, what we do with the time that we have currently rather than extending the time. If we get it right with the 180 days and the, the day that we have now, then we can open the conversation with the, maybe a longer school year and a longer longer day. All right. Well, thank you all for being here today. We've covered a lot of ground uh, <laughs> in a short period of time. Uh, our guests again were Phil Harris, Nalen Clark, and Dale Chu. Uh, Dale's from the Indiana Department of Education. Dr. Nalen Clark, the superintendent of schools in South Harrison. And Phil Harris, who's with a group called the Indiana Coalition for Public Education here in Bloomington. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Gretchen Frazee, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933, online at mypremierortho.com.